If you're tired of the superficial and you're craving real conversation about life, relationships, fears, doubts, and the divine in the middle of it, this is the place for you. My name is Anna Dimmel, and I'm a blogger, writer, and former pastor. And it's my passion to build bridges, not walls, through honest, real conversation and connection. And I want that for you. This is the show that will help you do that and give you not only inspiration and connection, but will help you leave the superficial for good and form the real connections you're craving. Your story matters, and I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Welcome to the Behind the Mirror podcast. I am so happy you are joining us today. Today is a special episode because I'm being joined by my brother. And I am so excited for you to meet him and hear his wisdom and hear his insight on such a sensitive topic. And that topic is this whole Me Too movement and the allegations that are now coming forward of sexual abuse and abuse of power. Um, towards women inside the church. And it is affecting a lot of us. And there are a lot of people that have strong opinions on so many different angles of these stories that are now coming forward. And, you know, this has affected me personally and it's affected my brother. And so we are very transparent in this episode and very honest about our thoughts on on some of these stories that have come to light as well as where we are hoping the church goes from here. And so you picked a great one to jump in on. I am really excited to dive into this topic today. But before we do that, I I said last week that I have started a podcast private Facebook group and I would love for you to be part of it. If you want to jump in, you can opt in on my website at justajesusfollower.com backslash podcast backslash podcast group. You can opt in and pick up on the conversation um, of what we're talking about here today because I'm sure this will be resonating with people in the group after this episode goes live. So um, I've also set up a voicemail and that is for any of you that feel like there's something that's said in an episode that just resonates with you and you feel like you can add to that conversation. You feel like you have something to say and it could be comment, a feedback um, question. It could be a personal story that relates to what we're talking to. I want to hear it. And that number you can call anytime. It's 913-890-3528. And, and I hope you make use of that. I really look forward to hearing from you guys and hearing what's what's going on in your heart and in your head. And if you don't want me to share it on the podcast, just tell me and I will respect your privacy and it will stay just between us. Um, but if not, there might be someone that can benefit from your point of view and what you have to say. So um, both of those links will be in the show notes of this episode. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I reminded you guys of that um, because I think they're both great and they're creating a lot of great conversations. So Without any further ado, I am going to introduce you to my brother as we hit this topic hard in this episode. So here we go.
Hello and welcome back to the Behind the Mirror podcast. Today is a special episode because I am joined by my brother who will be co-hosting this show with us today. And I am so excited for you guys to meet him. He is one of my absolute best friends. He is one of the most trusted people in my life and he has such depth and wisdom and humor and insight and I'm just so excited for you guys to get to meet him. So, Jonathan, can you say hello? Hello. Yay, he's here. And Jonathan, tell the listeners just a little bit about you and your day-to-day life and what um, you are doing with yourself in Tennessee. Well, I live in Nashville. Again, thanks for having me on, Anna. Um, I am a musician. I'm a drummer, and I play kind of all over the country uh, with a few different artists. And um, when I'm not doing that, I am just hanging out at home with my wife, my daughter. My daughter is nine years old. And let's see, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of it. Well, you forgot two members of your household that are very entertaining that you should probably give credit to. Oh, gosh, yes. We have two cats, one who is really old and grumpy but sweet at the same time. Her name is Nash, and we have a new little kitten, and we've named him Pino, and he is wild. Uh, So you might hear him running around chasing our older cat, Um, The older cat is very dramatic when she's being chased, Uh, makes some of the worst sounds you've ever heard. (laughs) My favorite is when you um, reference Nash as your senior citizen cat. That is my absolute favorite phrase that you've ever used in describing your cat. (laughs) Yes, she is. She is. I think she's about 12 years old now. So she is a senior citizen. She is overweight. She wants to sit in front of the TV eating TV dinners, and not be (laughs) disturbed by the young Pino. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. And anyone who follows me on Instagram knows that I have a new puppy in our house. So I am totally consumed with trying to potty train and all those crazy things. So anyway, I I always love all the animal stories because they're hitting very close to home right now. Um, Okay, so anyone who knows us and knows our family knows without a shadow of a doubt the eclectic upbringing that we had with two very artistic parents and um, there's always a lot of great stories around our upbringing and our parents and our family so if you have a great little snippet of a mom and dad story you could share with my listeners I think it would just embody the whole um picture of where you and I come from. Do you have any quick little stories you can share? I do. The one that comes to mind is one that I think paints a very accurate picture of both mom and dad. Um, My dad was a performer. He was a drummer as well when we were younger. And my mom, she is a performer. She is a ballet dancer. And so kind of the dimmel motto has always been the show must go on. So I'll never forget when we were younger, my mom was putting on one of her very first dance performances. I think it was at actually the school that you were attending at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. And she had, uh, 
she had talked us into being performers in this in this piece, and uh, our job was simple. Uh, we weren't we weren't very old at the time. I want to say you were probably seven or eight, and I was maybe five years old. And our job was to go out on stage and kneel and and pray as a brother and sister. I have no idea as the as to the context of the entire performance, what we were doing. I just knew we were going out there to pray and then walk off stage. And so I remember feeling sick leading up to this performance, probably because I get really nervous. Um, (laughs) And that was the first time I had heard my dad say, buddy, the show must go on. You got to get out there. You got to do it. We're all counting on you. So I got out there. The lights come up. I'm in my position. My sister is in her position. And we are praying. And I think everything is going great. I think, wow, Dad's probably really proud of me. I don't feel well, but I'm out here. I'm performing, (laughs) doing my best. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I see my sister point at the ground in front of me. And she she stops pointing, and then I think, that was weird, and she points again. <laughs> Finally, I realize that she is trying to tell me, not so subtly, I might add, that I am in the wrong place. I should be kneeling a little bit to the left and not where I'm actually kneeling. And so this continues what what feels like to a five-year-old for a really long period of time until I finally have had enough and I reared back and slapped my sister's hand (laughs) right there on the stage we went from brother and sister kneeling to pray to brother and sister openly fighting (laughs) and the lights went out and uh I don't know that I've ever seen my dad that mad at me. And uh, so I learned a valuable lesson that day. I think we all did. Um, But that's just a little window into part of our childhood. Yes, yes. And it goes without saying that I don't think mom and dad ever placed us on stage together in that close proximity ever again. (laughs) I think that was it. Yeah, no, that, that that was it. I don't think it ever happened again. No, they weren't going to risk that happening again. That show-stopping moment was not going to happen under their watch. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. So funny. Yes, that that's definitely a perfect um, snapshot, I would say, of how life was growing up. The show always did go on. But I will say, I continued to dance my mom um, – was a ballet dancer, like Jonathan said, and and I danced all the way through. And what's so funny is that, Jonathan, you did too. And you don't share this very often, but every now and then, if we're, you know, got a little wine flowing or having a funny evening, you can pull out some moves that clearly stuck. I mean, you have some skills in there, my friend. I wouldn't call them skills. <laughs> I would call them scars. <laughs> But you know what's funny about that, that you brought that up? Here I've spent most of my life shielding everyone from this fact that 
I was forced to take ballet for <laughs> years. I think I finally was able to stop when I was maybe 11, maybe 12, somewhere in there. Yeah, it was probably closer um, to I play this little game with Lillian, my daughter, where it's actually something my dad used to do to us. I don't know if you remember, but I will tell her I have a secret to tell her. And she'll put her ear up and I'll, I'll just whisper sounds that tickle her ear over and over. I won't actually say anything. Yeah. And, and I'm... And, you know, she'll laugh and back away and I'll say, no, come on, I got to tell you something. She comes back and she, you know, runs away laughing again. Well, she's getting old enough now where she's getting mad at me that I'm not actually telling her anything. So, you know, I'll, I'll eventually say, you know, I love you or something. So the other day we were playing this game and she goes, she's getting real frustrated with me. And she says, you have to tell me. And it can't just be I love you. <laughs> And so I brought her close and I said, I used to take ballet. Oh my gosh, you did not. And she absolutely died laughing. She had <laughs> never heard that before. She thought that was the funniest thing that she oh, had wow. ever heard. You know, because she sees me be silly and I'll right. dance around the house to make her laugh. And I think in her wildest dreams with how hilarious it looks, she would never have thought that I took lessons to do this. And she looks at me after she's done laughing and she goes, now that was a good secret. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love her so much. Lillian is just, gosh, her personality is so witty and, and in tune and deep and she doesn't miss a beat. And I absolutely love that about her. So I bet she was just absolutely enthralled with the idea of her dad taking ballet. I mean, just, yeah, that was a good secret. Way to go. <laughs> yep. So the older she gets, you know, the more secret she's actually going to force out of me, it seems. Yes. Well, you know, daughters have a way of doing that. They do. So segueing into the topic today, I brought you on today because we're going to talk about some of these stories that are making headlines um, inside of the church realm regarding the Me Too movement. And um, this is such a, a hard topic to talk about because I think it evokes a lot of emotion in a lot of people. And especially when we see safe people doing unsafe things, it can really rattle us. And um, I believe the best way to handle anything we're afraid of is just to look at it. And learn everything we can about it. And fear tends to dissipate when we do that. So I've really been studying a lot of these um, stories. And and really, gosh, just it's causing so many questions to come up in me. And probably in a lot of other people too. Um, so the first story I wanted to cover was the one that came out in the New York Times. It was around March, the beginning of March, I think. And some of the listeners may have already seen this story. But it was regarding uh, Jules Woodson. She was 17 when her youth pastor, Andy Savage, um, offered to take her home. And they're driving to where she thinks is home, but they take a turn she's not familiar with. They go down a dark road, and he proceeds to unzip his pants and tell her to give him a blowjob, of which she does. And then... According to her, he's mortified afterwards and 
um, tells her that she has to take this story to the grave with her. And she's completely confused and doesn't know what's happened. I think in her interview um, that I heard her talking about it, she says that she believed that he loved her. She believed that he was a godly man and she could trust him and that he loved her. And then to find out that this was not love, but something terribly different was, was very hard for her. So she goes to the leaders of her church and they kind of don't believe her. And then they just tell her they're going to handle it internally. And it all is tried to be swept under the rug. And this all came to light when here we are now 20 years later. And this former youth pastor is now on staff at High Point Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And he goes before the congregation now that she's coming forward with all of these allegations about this incident. Um, he addresses his con congregation kind of apologizing, kind of not. Um, there was a lot of cheering in the room involved. So I don't know how you take that when it comes to someone admitting to something like this. Um, so it's evoked a lot of emotion in a lot of people. So he's still on staff. He's pastor, full-time in ministry, and this is bring, being brought to light about him. So, Jonathan, what's your take on this story? Well, <clears throat> my first reaction is that that was an abuse of power. Um, you, you're put in a position of leadership and like you said, the people underneath you are there to trust you, are there to be guided by you. And when you use that in that way, um, it's, it's unacceptable. And in my opinion, that's, that's something where if you abuse that power, I do believe that there's forgiveness. I absolutely believe that God can wash those sins completely away from you. What's really sad is that girl will have to live with that for the rest of her life. And I really do believe that while God can wash you of that, while you can be reconciled in God's eyes, it's a one strike and you're out. I think I think there's absolutely no place for someone in church leadership that goes down that path. And you know, it's interesting you say that because a lot of people um, have responded to this whole story saying the opposite of what you just said, saying, well, agreeing with you that God can forgive and God can, you know, redeem, but then saying, well, because he's been forgiven, he he's fine. And I've even heard people go as far as to say that she's bitter. And that's why she's not coming forward, that she herself needs to work on forgiving and letting go. And that this is just evidence of her bitterness. And that's why she's bringing this all to light. What do you say to that? No, none of us really know what's going on inside her, what's going on inside him. But when someone is a victim, that's, that's where you need to go first. 
not to the person who has victimized someone, but to the person who has been a victim and the person who has felt used. And in my opinion, that's where we need to start with where do we land with this? Well, where is she at? Is she, is she still broken? Is she still hurting from this? Why is that? Is it possibly because anyone that she has brought this to has made her feel guilty potentially, or made her feel like that she did something wrong? I think that's probably the more likely scenario as to why she's still continuing to deal with this is because of our reaction. And you know, I, and that's the part in a lot of these stories that is so sad is that, and her story is the same as many others you hear when it comes to um, allegations of abuse of power or sexual um, abuse or misconduct in any way is usually especially inside of church organizations, they aren't believed. And, and I've, I've wondered so many times, like, why are they so not believed? And what is it about, about this particular topic when it comes to someone in leadership at a church or in a ministry position that they do not want to even entertain the idea that someone in that position could be capable of this, which is bizarre to me because, I mean, how many times do we hear of um, embezzlement inside of churches, right? Or misuse of funds or misuse of finances. Like they don't have any problem investigating that stuff. They don't have any problem pointing the finger at those kinds of things. But when it comes to sexual issues such as this, it seems to be very hard to get people's attention, and I just, that baffles me. I, I don't get that. I think that when you are under someone's leadership and every week you are soaking in what they have to say, you are applying it to your life, you are taking it as God speaking to you, which I know a lot of, a lot of us do who are in church listening to someone who is speaking to us, we are, we're really soaking that stuff in. And so I think when something like that is brought to light, and let's say it's just kind of his word against her word, there's no proof necessarily. Without realizing, and I think that your initial thought is, there's, there's no way that my pastor, the person who I've trusted for years, the person who has poured so much into my life, could do this. And most of the people feel a lot more connected in the church to the pastor than they do a certain member. Um, And so accepting that it's true, whether they realize it or not, all of the sudden everything that that person has said that they have accepted as truth now goes into the questionable category. All of a sudden it's like, wow, I don't know how I feel about someone 
speaking into my life who is capable of doing this. And so it it really is a difficult thing to swallow for a lot of people. You make a good point there. And I think it leads me to go down that, that train of thought where I start thinking then, okay, so have we put these pastors on such a pedestal that it's now idolatry? It's now like we're worshiping the person instead of the God we're supposed to be focusing on. You know, are these people holding such power that we view them as godlike. And and I know that that would bug a lot of people to hear me say that that oh I don't look at my pastor like god, he's just a guy, you know, or she's just a girl or whatever. <clears throat> but but you're right, it does expose something in us when and I'm using us in generic terms because I personally don't respond this way, but it does expose something in the church group as a whole when they cannot allow themselves to to hear critique or hear allegations or hear the idea that their pastor could not be perfectly godly. You know, like what have we done internally to put them on such a place where we do that? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's a really good point. And I think sometimes it's really difficult not to do that for some people. I think a lot of people go through their week not really giving God a second thought until they get to church on Sunday and 30 minutes out of the pastor's mouth is really the first time that they're focusing on something that has to do with God. And so I think the more you focus on church being your only interaction with God, the more you will be likely to put them on a pedestal. But if you are interacting with God in your day-to-day life, and church is just an extension of that, I think it's going to be a lot easier for you to accept that they're human. Yeah. You're human. They're human. Um, and that really your lifeline and, and your source of truth should be coming straight from the Lord. Right. Well, and it bothers me, um, and I think you even said this earlier um, in regards to him still being allowed to be a pastor. This, and, and, and if anybody's interested, and I'll put the link to the article in the show notes of this episode, um, they give in the, um, in the news article, they give a link to the video of the church service where this youth pastor, who's now a teaching pastor at this church, um, he doesn't really confess, but he kind of does. It's it's the, it's in this really backdoor kind of way where he keeps referring to this as an incident that happened 20 years ago. And he says 20 years ago, about 20 times. Um, and the church at the end, like gives loud applause to him. It's bizarre, but he says in his intro that he confided in the pastors at that church before he took the position that this had happened. So 
I'm kind of going, wait a second. And they still hired you? Like you were a youth pastor and, and this happened with one of your kids in your youth group. And they still were like, yes, this is the guy we want teaching from our pulpit. This is the guy we want on staff at our church. And so when you said that comment, you said, yeah, one strike and you're out. I don't think churches view this topic as something like that. I don't think that that churches view this as a um, null and void issue, that sexual issues, abuse of power, which is what this clearly appears to be, because it doesn't sound like he forced himself on her. It sounded like he told her what to do and she did it. So I don't think he held a gun to her head, but... For any of us, especially women, who have been in a position where we are underneath the authority of a stronger, more powerful, in this situation, more godly man, it is not our instinct to say no. You know, a lot of people under anyone of power, your instinct is to, to follow them, is to go where they're going because you've, in, you've invested so much of your trust into them already. You know, this wasn't some stranger. This was someone she trusted and depended on. And um, she followed. And so that is certainly an abuse of power at the minimum. You know, and what else you could go from there? I don't know because I wasn't there and nobody was there other than the two of them. But it was wrong. And so to put someone into an even higher leadership position after they've already proven to abuse the power they were given in the past, I expand a little bit on, on what you meant by that when you said one strike, you're out. Because I think I know what you meant, but go ahead and expand if you don't mind. I think that <clears throat> it's one thing to make a mistake when you're in leadership. And I'll just kind of backtrack and say you're held to a higher standard when you are in leadership that's part of the responsibility yeah not everyone would be looked at the same way if they did the exact same thing but when it is a church leader that someone is trusting in to lead them spiritually in the right direction and then that is abused for personal sexual gratification that's just something that i don't think you can look past and i i really think that that person can still be used by God. I'm not saying his life is over once that happens. He made a mistake, but in that role, I really don't think it's a mistake that you take a chance happening a second time. I agree with you. I agree with once, you. Once someone <clears throat> abuses that leadership and is not upholding that higher standard. And I really think too, one specification that should be made is that I don't think church leaders have to be perfect at all. I think there's a difference between doing something wrong that affects you or affects money or affects any number of things but when you do something that scars 
someone who trusted you to lead them and you did it knowing it would right. scar them. Right. That to me is where the line has to be drawn. And I don't think that that means that that person has no more has no more places that they could go in in ministry. I just don't think that being on staff at a church, being endorsed by the people who go there, it should be an option anymore. I agree. And I I look at it a lot like like what you said, that there there is a higher standard with people in positions like that. And you know, you look at you look at doctors, you look at psychiatrists, you look at um teachers, you know, people who are responsible for other humans in their care. And we would not allow a doctor to continue in his practice if he was sexually molesting his patients. Like that wouldn't happen. Even one incident of him doing that, he would lose his license. Same with a psychiatrist or a counselor or a therapist or, or a teacher. You know, these people that are entrusted with the lives of others at such a high level, they lose their jobs when they do things like this and they are not allowed to return to them. And so, you know, I look at these stories and I hear the feedback of people saying, well, he needs to just be forgiven and God's redeemed. And we're saying that God can't change someone if we don't allow him to fulfill his purpose. Well, I think that that's all complete hogwash because he should be held to an even higher standard than a physician. When you take the role of spiritual care, to me, that is just as important, if not of greater importance than physical care or educational care or mental care. Because oftentimes pastors are doing all of those things, whether they want to say they are or not. When you are entrusted with someone's spiritual care, you are entrusted with their emotional care, with their soul care, with their mental care, sometimes even their physical care. I mean, people go to their pastors for all of those things. And so when a pastor, someone in spiritual authority, abuses that role, to me, I think the stakes should be even higher than that of a, of a physician. I truly do. And so I'm in full agreement of you. One strike and you're out. That should be a no no, you have lost this job now. You need to find another one. And like you said, that doesn't mean they can't be involved in church things or, or try to fulfill what they believe their purpose should be. But it cannot be in a position where they've already proven that they could abuse that role in such a way that scars people to this degree. There's there's another story that came out recently. In, yeah. Hey, Anna. Let me, let me just, before we leave this story, I just want to kind of throw a slight tweak in this story and just ask you if we would feel the same way. I'm curious, let's say this exact same incident happened, but instead of her thinking she was being driven home and him telling her to do this, what if... It was simply a consensual thing where they both 
kind of fell for each other, if you will. And granted, she would have been in his youth group. He would have been one of the leaders. They have a consensual relationship for a little while, and then it dissolves. He openly confesses. She admits that she knew what she was doing. It was wrong. How would we feel about that in in that scenario? Would we still say he's out? Or does that change? Well, my question to you would be, what if it was your daughter and her youth pastor and it was quote unquote consensual? What would you say to that? Pretty much the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, same here. Same here. However, I do think that people would feel a lot differently in that scenario if it was not their own kid. I feel like the majority of people would feel like that was something that they could more easily understand. Well, because it it takes away the idea of abuse of power and more of a, um, a lack of responsibility to your position. You know, there's a difference there. If I'm holding my power over you to manipulate a scenario to get what I want, that's an abuse of power. But if I just am in this role and I am not using my power to get what I want, but I fall into a situation where I don't measure up to the responsibility that's been given to me, I think that is different. I, I think it shows... It shows another heart issue for sure, but not to the level of um, depravity. You know, it, it doesn't feel as as evil, <laughs> I guess, because it still looks like someone I wouldn't trust in that role again because it shows that they can't make clear decisions in that role, but it doesn't show that they're abusing their power in that role by manipulating and harming other people. Um I don't know. That's how I would view it. But either way, I wouldn't want the guy to be a youth pastor over my daughter. Either way. I would I would have to totally agree. I think, though, that in the second scenario, there would be plenty of churches that 10, 20 years down the road with proper safeguards in place, whether it's rules of not being alone with the opposite sex or whatever it might be, I could see a church or a congregation forgiving and accepting and trying to move forward past that. I would agree with you. I still don't know that I would be comfortable with it, but I can see where other people might be um, more easily okay with that. Either way, wouldn't want him on staff in my church. (laughs) Either way, that's where I land. Um, okay. So there's this other story that came out. It's a local story. It came out in the Kansas city star earlier this month. Um, Jennifer Graves wrote, she's now 47. She's ordained in the Anglican church and currently works as a therapist. And she recently came out about her former youth pastor. Um, and this was out in California. It was first Baptist church in Modesto, California. She was 14 at the time. And, Her father died, and she goes through a youth pastor, um, all the things that you would normally expect from a youth pastor in a scenario like that for comfort, for guidance, 
all those things. And she claims that for the next two and a half years, he sexually abused her. And the interesting thing about this story is that this youth pastor, Brad Tabot, I don't know if I'm saying that correct or not. Unlike the first story where um, the pastor leaves the church or moves on, this guy stayed in ministry and continues on in ministry. And up until this story being released has been in ministry this whole time. His bio says he's been in youth ministry now for over 30 years and most recently was on staff at IHOP Church here in Kansas City, um, overseeing a 50-year-old and over ministry. And so there is so much about this story that just grips me, Jonathan. It just, it makes me sick. Um, But I want to hear, what was your initial response to this story? Well, going off of what we just talked about, we're now going to a much further extreme of someone was sexually assaulted for two and a half years. So without even blinking an eye, we can agree. Well, that was a hundred strikes and you're out. So this person absolutely should not have ever been back in ministry. What's really sad, we don't know what was going on 30 years ago. We don't know who this girl tried to tell or if she told anyone at the time. But whatever the culture was back then that made her A, feel like she couldn't go to someone in the church, or B, that she couldn't go to the police about this. That's really awful. That's really sad. And if everything she's saying is true, it's quite possible that she was under a more Um, intense version of what we were talking about earlier, this kind of spell that you get put under by someone who you think is supposed to be leading you in the right direction to where maybe he had her brainwashed to where she didn't think it was wrong. If it's going on for two and a half years, and I think you had said she was 14 when it happened, so she's extremely impressionable. Right. I think it's such a shame that this was not brought out Mm -hmm. into the brightest light 30 years ago. Because if he was abusing her for two and a half years, 30 years ago, and he has continued to be in church ministry, I find it very hard to believe that there aren't Agreed. other victims and now. The same thread in this story, if I remember it correctly, is echoed in the first story, which is that they did go to church leaders at some point and they weren't believed. And, you know, in the first story, you have a 17-year-old who's a bit more persistent. But in this story, I think it was just kind of brushed aside and moved past. And 
you know, this whole idea of we're going to handle this internally, which is usually the way churches respond when they hear allegations like this. Um, but then you don't see anything happening past that. Just, oh, don't. Okay. Okay. Thank you for sharing. We're going to handle this internally. What on earth does that even mean? I mean, I know you and I can speculate like what that actually means, but Jonathan, handling it internally, a crime, I, I, I can't, I cannot even wrap my mind around that. I don't, I don't comprehend why a church or any organization for that matter would not involve authorities who are skilled at investigating things like this. You know, why would they try to investigate this on their own? That is not what they're good at. That is not what they've been trained to do. And yet so often that's exactly what churches say. Okay, okay, well, just just hush, hush. We're going to handle it internally. And then it just gets brushed aside, seemingly. I mean, we don't know. We're not behind closed doors. But what do you say to that when you hear that phrase handled internally? What, what do you say to that? Well... Let's look at it as if you're the pastor and some of your closest friends and people who admire you and respect you are the people that you've surrounded yourself with as the elders of the church or whomever in church leadership. And your closest friends and people who respect you are now going to come and question you about something you may or may have may or may not have done without bias I think that's that's absolutely something that wouldn't happen I think that what else can you do you're going to go to the pastor you're going to say hey this has been said did you do this and all the pastor has to do is right. say, no, I didn't do that. And if there's no proof, if there's no evidence besides what someone is claiming, well, then what do you do? Do you trust the person who you've entrusted to lead you spiritually, one of your closest friends, or someone that you don't know that well? And so I think handling it internally a lot of times is a simple did you do this? No. Okay. Well, we right. we believe you. We trust you. And and that's how it get, gets brushed aside. And maybe the pastor would admit to something. But maybe he's crafty enough to spin it in a way that all of a sudden changes what happened in a way that puts him in a better light and her in a worse light. And it becomes something that they look at as not a crime, but as maybe something more innocent and a misunderstanding and, oh, she thought this, but I really right. said and did this, you know? I just, um, you know, I'm think I'm sitting here listening to you say that and I'm thinking to myself about, about situations I've been in and how, you know, it takes a lot for someone to come forward, period, about something like this. And I mean, Jonathan, you know, some of the things I've been through, I went through being sexually molested when I was little, and I went through um, a doctor being highly inappropriate with me. I had a person in leadership 
um, try to kiss me. I mean, it was just, there's been so many things that happened when I was underage with men in power and men in positions of authority that were just so shame filled. And I think that that's why a lot of women don't come forward at first, or if they do, it's terrifying to do so because we innately take it inside of ourselves that we've done something to bring it on or that we've done something wrong or that somehow it's our fault. And so when a, when a young girl or old girl for that matter comes forward and says, this happened to me, I don't think we've given credit enough to how hard it is to do that. You know, I sat silent for most of the things of my, in my life that have happened to me like that. And, and I didn't really think twice about it. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to admit that some of those things were happening to me. And so you do, you, you go internal and you stay quiet. So when churches have this reaction of not believing a victim when she comes forward, breaks my heart because that is the entire problem with why so much of this stuff has, has been hidden for so long, because no one is giving any credit to how hard it is for someone who has been through something like that to even raise a hand and say, something's happening to me and it, and it doesn't feel right, you know? Yeah, tell me this, as a, as a man, sometimes it's so hard for me and other men to understand how something as awful as being raped or anything like that. It's so hard for us to understand how that could happen to a woman and then her not tell anyone. I think because you've dealt with some of these things, I would love to just hear from your perspective when something like that happens, what are the main things that go against any thought that you would have to tell someone what happened? What are the things that are fighting against you? The things that are fighting against you are the the fear of how you'll be perceived. Um, you know, a lot a lot of people my age, and I and I think this is changing for the generation that I'm raising my daughters. But as I was growing up, I was told, you know, don't dress this way. You know, don't wear too short of shorts because guys will start thinking things or. Or don't do this to a guy because he'll think that you're leading him on. Or don't do this or or the guy will think that you want more. I mean, there was so much pressure put on us to, to not do things to invite unwanted sexual advances. I mean, it was, it was like we held so much of the power in that regard to where we really believed any advances that came on us were brought on by ourselves and our own behavior. So... To go and admit that unwanted sexual advances or, or abuse or mistreatment came your direction, there's a big fear that you're going to per be perceived as, as the one who brought it on yourself. Mm. 
And when you feel violated and when you feel taken advantage of, you already feel shame. So you, you fear that by bringing it out into the light, so to speak, that you're inviting more shame and more ridicule. And that is an overwhelmingly terrifying feeling. And so it's easier to just go inward, deal with the little bit of shame you already have and not open up and invite more in. Yeah. You know, another thing that I wonder if this happens in some of these scenarios is choosing carefully if something were to happen to you, choosing very carefully who the first person you choose to open up to about what happened. Because that first person has a lot of power for how you're going to perceive what happened to you, how you should feel about it, was it wrong? Was it right? And I think there are probably a lot of scenarios where someone opens up about it, but potentially to the wrong person, the person mm -hmm. who instead of listening and comforting and encouraging and trying to lead them through where we go from here, they open up to someone who their first response is questioning. Right. And maybe with good intent, but to say, well, why were you wearing that? Or why were you walking home alone with that boy? Or why, you know, and a lot of times mm -hmm. I think parents with good intentions without realizing it could be shaming their children out right after a situation like that happens. Because I know as a dad... You're, you're trying to instill these things to keep your children safe, you know. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But if something were to happen and your, ch your child did some of those things that you've warned them not to do, I just have to encourage parents. And talking to myself, if I were to ever be in this situation that we have to absolutely throw those things out the window in that moment and, right. and be what your child needs and, and not, and not be questioning them as to why they didn't follow the, the handbook on how not to be, um, not to be in that situation, you know? Right. And I think one of the arguments that has made me so angry over the years is the one that says, oh, well, she was just saying that to get attention. And I, and maybe there's a 1% group of people who would make up a story like this to get attention. But as someone who served in youth ministry and who worked alongside kids who've been through a lot of stuff, and as a mom and as a woman who's been through it myself, and as someone who's met with rape victims and sexual abuse victims, I've even met with a kidnapped victim. These are not women who want to say these stories to get attention. In fact, this is the opposite of any attention they would ever want. No one wants attention over a story like this. No one does. Like I said, maybe there's a very small percent, but the majority, this is not the kind of attention that people want. And so for anybody who ever hears 
someone come to them and, and open up and trust them with a story like this, with a, with a, um, abused situation or, or even back to the first one, just an abuse of power, any, any girl or boy who opens up and says that to someone that they trust should be immediately believed and immediately taken to the proper authorities that can help them through it. Because truthfully, you know, this last situation, this was a crime. This should have been brought to the police. This should have been brought to investigators and social workers and therapists who could come in and help her navigate all of the emotions that she was dealing with because of it. That's what she needed. She didn't need someone to tell her to forgive and forget and not talk about it. That is the absolute last thing she needed or to be questioned. Like you said, you know, that is, um, a natural instinct of a parent or a caretaker is to question. But we have to remember that when a victim comes forward, we have to treat them as a victim. Even before we know all the facts involved, if someone is opening up about this, they need to be believed and they need to be given tools to help navigate it. Yeah. I would say the flip side is what about what about the really small minority, like you said, of people who might say something like this because they want attention or for some sort of revenge on a boyfriend who they were upset with and they, well, I'm going to ruin his life. I'm going to claim this and I'm going to put it out there. For everyone to see, you know, even if nothing was done, but what what would you say we should do in those situations to try and what would be some warning signs from a girl's perspective of of someone who you would go, you know, this doesn't sound like someone who this actually happened to. I don't know that there are any textbook warning signs, you could say, because a lot of people handle trauma differently. So again, this goes back to, okay, if this really happened, I'm going to help you find resources to heal, which would include authorities, which would include counselors. And those people are trained to get the bottom, to get the bottom of things like this. If it is a lie, they're going to sniff it out. A good therapist will be able to to navigate those waters and be able to quickly identify if this is a false allegation. So would most likely the investigators in the authorities that are involved to investigate things like this. I would hope that they have tools to figure out, did this really happen? But as a layperson, you know, we don't know. We don't know, which is why we have to err on the side of believing them, but our next response should be to take them to people who do know how to handle these things and trust them through that process. And, um, I hate, I hate seeing people falsely accused. I hate that. And I, and I hate when people take advantage of, um, platforms and use them to harm other people. I hate that it's going to happen, but, but somehow Jonathan, I think the truth always comes out right? Like, I feel like the people who make false allegations, usually those stories die out or usually um, the right people do get involved and the truth comes to light. At least that's what I've seen. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think that you 
answered my question, a warning sign would be after you have listened, after you have been there for that person, after you have believed them, just like you said, the next step should be, we need to report this. We need to go to the authorities. This, right. this, was, this was illegal and we need to pursue this immediately. And if that's something that they really don't want to do, I would have to really start to consider why. Yeah, well, and there could be a lot of reasons. Some people, fear is too heavy. They're not ready. Um, and for other people, it is that they're trying to hide that it's not really true. You know, there could be a lot of different reasons why someone wouldn't want to report. But I think, thankfully, a lot of the reasons for not wanting to report seem to be dying out. And I, and I think this Me Too movement has a lot to do with that. There's almost um, a, a wave of, of empowerment and a wave of like energy towards being truthful and towards going to the proper authorities and, and saying what has happened and getting investigations to happen and getting movement legally and getting movement in therapy. I mean, these are things that were not the status quo, not even 15 years ago not even probably 10 years ago, five years ago. I mean, this is all very new. And so I think we have a major shift in, in our approach towards going to authorities and our approach towards being honest and our approach towards seeking out the help that's needed in situations like this. And I, and I think a lot of that has to do with this Me Too movement, which I'm so thankful for because our daughters are now given an opportunity to grow up in a society where this is not as shame-based. Yeah, I think the Me Too movement is incredible. Just like you said, I am so thankful to be raising my daughter in an era where it's not okay for these things to happen and for them to just keep happening. I think that is that is at the heart of the movement is is people realizing that man the longer we keep silent the longer this person is continuing to harm other people. Right. And it's got to stop. And I I have a belief that the world that we live in is actually less dangerous than it seems for women. I really do. I really do believe that there are a lot of good men out there that are constantly being overshadowed by mm. the, the bad apples that are continuing to do things over and over and over again. Right. And if you have one person who through the course of his life assaults 500 women, well, all of a sudden that one person seems like 500 different men. Right. You know what I mean? Right. You're true. Yeah, it's true. And I, I just couldn't be more proud of the women who are coming forward 
to hopefully one by one start taking these people who do not belong on our streets off the streets. I really, really hope that our world looks a lot different than it does right now in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. Because women are now feeling empowered to say something and say something quick. Because if something happens to you and you say something quick, you have no idea how many lives you've potentially saved from harm. It's so true. It's so true. And and not only taking them off the streets, to your point, but taking them out of roles of power, which seems to be where the majority of, of these things are happening. Um, I've heard it said on Facebook, and you know, Facebook is just a cesspool sometimes of opinions, but this one stood out to me. I saw a post where it was a dad, and he is raising boys, and he wrote something along the lines of, I'm just so appalled that I have to now raise my sons in a society where they're always going to be scrutinized and they're always going to be looked at as, as a predator. And, and I just, I just cannot believe that this is the the world I'm raising my, my boys in. What as a guy, Jonathan, as a guy, what would you say to a post like that? Too bad. (laughs) You know, if you are treating women with respect and you are above board, you don't have one thing to worry about. Right, right. Because even a situation like we were talking about earlier, where maybe you've got an ex-girlfriend who's mad that you're happy now and she wants revenge and she wants to ruin your life and she's going to say some things. Well, if you have lived your life above board and you are a person that has the trust of many women in that situation that unlikely situation where someone were to falsely accuse you of something you are going to have that army of women that will be standing beside you saying this does not sound anything like what he he is he this is not the person that we know And I think the guys and the dads who are upset about the way things are moving are probably the guys who enjoy catcalling girls on the street, probably enjoy occasionally slapping a girl on the butt or saying something sexual to her. Uh, that, That was never me. That was never the friends that I hung out with. And so there are absolutely no, no things that I would normally do on a day-to-day basis that change at all because of this. This only affects negatively men and boys who want to be able to say or do whatever they want when they want to do it. Mm. And I think that there has been an attitude among some men, some kids in school that says, well, if I'm not if I'm not raping someone, then what's the big deal? Yeah, I can I can do this or I can say this or I could touch her here and whatever. It's not a big deal. And it is a big deal. Right. And we're starting to see that 
women are realizing that they can say something even about what some men would say are small insignificant things but I know from firsthand experience that the women in my life who have experienced what some guys would consider a small thing can absolutely traumatize them and that man has absolutely no right to say or touch or act the way that he was and I think it's a wonderful thing that that is starting to be looked at as not the norm anymore. I agree and I I feel like I'm hearing like a lot of women who are hearing what you're saying and thinking just based on their own personal experience of most of the men in their life have been people who have used their power to abuse them, who have used their position to to take from them and and make them do and say and be things they don't want to be a part of. So a lot of women hearing what you're saying might be going, well, I think most men are like this. What would you say to, to a woman who's thinking that right now? I would encourage them to start surrounding themselves with different men because not all men are like that. I can promise them that. If you are the type of person that goes out to bars on the weekends and most of the guys that you meet are there and you guys are both drunk, that's probably not the best place to meet a man who's looking to respect you and not make you feel the ways that you're hoping he won't make you feel. Right. There are lots of places to find guys that wouldn't give a second thought to making a woman feel lesser than in any situation. So I would just encourage that person to to realize that there is light at the end of this tunnel of crappy guys and start changing the environments that you're putting yourself in and start seeing the type of men that you're meeting in these different environments. And I believe that they will be pleasantly surprised at the, the difference in whether it's meeting a guy at a casual encounter at a coffee shop or meeting him at church or whatever. But I really do feel like most of the people that I know of that have nothing but negative things to say about men are usually the ones that are meeting them at one in the morning at a bar. Yes. However, that was not my story. I met my guys in church. I met the men in my life in um, nonprofit organizations I was working for. I met them in the workplace. I met them, you know, I wasn't meeting guys in places like that. I was meeting guys in all the right places. And I still came up with a lot of really bad experiences. Um, and so I don't, I don't necessarily believe that it's only environment based. I think that, that it is everywhere. I mean, these guys will be everywhere. And so 
there's going to be a good guy in a bar and there's going to be a good guy in church, but there's going to be a bad guy in a bar and a bad guy in church. You know what I mean? It's like for the women that keep finding the bad apples in all of the different scenarios, I mean, what do you say to that? Because the good guys are there, right? Like there are good guys in all these places, right? You make a great point because you're totally right. There are good guys everywhere. There are bad guys everywhere. I feel like what my previous statement is addressing is this is a good place to start. If you are in a place that you're constantly surrounding yourself with guys who are basically looking for a one night stand, that's step one. Get yourself into a different circle of people. But you're totally right. There are guys that are going to mistreat you at church. There are guys who are going to mistreat you at work. And what I would say to that is, honestly, you know way more than I would as to what are some early warning signs that you can see in guys who maybe down the road are really just looking out for themselves. Because that's what this really comes down to. Yeah, that's a great point. It really comes down to a guy who is either looking out for himself or he's looking out for you. It really is as simple as that. I could trace any sort of sexual misconduct back to that. And any thought that a guy who's looking out for you will be filtered through, is this best for her? And that should translate in a number of different actions. But I think really quickly, if you're observant, you can start to see, you know what? Everything that this guy is saying and doing seems to be selfishly motivated. And it might not be sexually. It might not be anything at first that would necessarily tip you off to, wow, this guy is potentially dangerous. But if everything seems to be selfishly based, it's time to move on. Agreed. And I think that that echoes what I have been quietly learning inside myself, which is the issue of value. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of women who have been in situations where they were devalued at a young age or at an age of adolescence or even in adulthood, you tend to absorb that mindset that your value is now somehow less because someone made you feel that way. And one of the best um, pieces of work, like internal work that I have done, is going inward and rewriting those value messages of determining what is my value, not according to what happened to me when I was little, not according to what happened to me in this relationship or that relationship or this encounter or that encounter. But what do I believe my value is? And if I truly believe my value is worthless or very small, then I have work to do. You know, I'm not going to speak up if someone mistreats me because somewhere inside, I I think that that's allowable. So rewriting my value has been hugely important for me. And and really, um, as one of my friends so brilliantly put it, it, you know, you got to change your BS detector. And when your value is is in a place of being centered, your ability to detect 
someone's BS shoots up dramatically. And not saying that some guy that seems innocent and great at first won't eventually show true colors later. But the thing is, is that when you begin to see those true colors, to your point, saying, okay, he's very, very mindful of himself and his needs and his wants and his power and his desires. And I am really low on that radar for him. When you start detecting things like that, if your value is centered or even somewhere close to center, you're going to detect that and be like, "Mm, no, thank you. I'm going to backpedal from this one. This is not somewhere I want to be. And so the value work is hugely important. And again, going back to the Me Too movement, I think it's reinstilling value into women. I really do. Um, And I think our value system of women has been skewed from the beginning. And I talk about that in in one of my other podcasts about um, patriarchy. And it's a great episode if anyone wants to go back and listen to it. Because from the beginning... Women's value by men, mankind has been very low, but God never saw women as anything less than men. He never did. And, and from the beginning, God has been trying to rewrite that story of how we view women. And I talk about that in that episode. Um, and so I think this Me Too movement is pushing us more towards that equality that God intended, more towards that equal value system that God originally put in place. And for a lot of us, our ability to see our value really does affect how we respond to the way people treat us. Because we can't control the way someone treats us. You know, someone could take advantage of you. Yes, even if your value is very high. But how you react to that really does say a lot about how you value your own worth. Mm. Yeah. I agree. That's really good. Well, on that note, um, I think we'll wrap it up. This has been a fantastic conversation, Jonathan. Thank you so much for, for sharing your male perspective on such a hot topic right now. Um, you were very modest in the beginning talking about what you do in Nashville. Can you share with our listeners some places they might hear your music? Well, I am currently the musical director for Meredith Andrews and Aaron Schust and Juliana Zobrist. The three of them keep me fairly busy. They are all awesome, wonderful people. Um, actually, this last year I did some work with the group Sela. Um, we just released a six-song live recording that was really fun to do you could check that out on their website yes and you're Uh, there playing the drums on the video i love i loved it that was so well done uh the i guess the latest thing i'm doing is i'm just now starting to work with um artist named josh wilson and uh he's somebody else you might have heard at some point but those are those are really the places that you could hear me and um i'm really proud to work with all those people they are absolute gems and truly the type of people that um, that you want to be around. So, I love that. I love that, and I love you. Um, I love your work. I do. You have such a a gift, and it's not only in your music because you're a fantastic musician, but it's also just in 
the way you carry yourself in every um, group that you're working with. And I think that that's why you stick around as long as you do with so many of these artists and these bands and you have such great respect for your, for your job and for the work that you do. And I just want to ad admonish you in that because it's a very, um, it's a very cool trait that you have. And I love that about you. So I love well, what you Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Well, thank you again, Jonathan, for being here. So appreciate it. And we'll have to have you back again. Would love it. All right, Jonathan. Oh my gosh. Was that not like the most fun episode? I love my brother. He's so insightful, so wise, so fun. I just, I'm so glad you guys got to meet him. I would love to get to know you. If you're not already in our Facebook group, please join us. We have so many fun conversations that happen in there. And I know that this topic will strike up a lot of conversation and um, resonate with a lot of you. So I would love for that conversation to happen. So if you're not already in the group, go to my website, justajesusfollower.com backslash podcast backslash podcast group. I will have a link in the show notes, but you can opt in there and then check your email because I will send you a quick invite and then you're in. So I would love to connect with you and I would love to hear your thoughts and um, your perspective on the Me Too movement and all of the things we talked about today. So thank you again for joining. I loved this podcast and I can't wait to hear from you guys about it. See you next week. Hey there, I hope you enjoyed the conversation today. You can find my blog and links to my Instagram and Facebook account on my website at justajesusfollower.com. I hope you join us next week for another raw, honest conversation. In the meantime, go in peace and know that you are enough.